Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of a series on gap-filling, when government and governing institutions fail. We're talking with community leaders about how nonprofit and advocacy organizations, as well as local grassroots groups, are doing the work for the community when the government can't or won't. And so, Casey, we've been talking a lot over the last few weeks about um, what it means for government to fail. And um, one of the kind of the biggest failures we've been talking about kind of offline is that our government and governing institutions in many ways have been founded on and scaffolded by white supremacy. And as a result uh, have perpetuated racist policies and practices. And that's a failure of our system that manifests in all different ways. Right. Yeah. And I think that we've kind of, <laughs> interestingly uh, enough, given our, our social justice framework for, uh, you know, the project and the podcast, we've skirted around this, but not been explicit about it. And I think that it, that's, you know, a bit of a failure on our part, too, is that uh, one of the biggest ways that government organizations and institutions fail uh, is that they are um, reinforcing white supremacy. And one of the ways in which this manifests itself really is through our juvenile justice system, where we know that kids that are black or brown, uh, these black and brown juveniles are disproportionately affected in ways that end in them being incarcerated. So learning more about that, we think would be uh, very useful for our listeners. This episode, we're really honored to have with us someone who's a leader in this space, Adrian Wallace. Adrian Wallace has more than 15 years developing the skills and talents of children and young people who have previously been incarcerated or at high risk of being swept up in the system of mass incarceration. Adrian's a scholar, racial justice advocate, a math teacher, an experienced school leader, and soon a lawyer. Adrian founded Underground with Black Students for Black and Brown students who are disproportionately impacted by the system of mass incarceration. Adrian, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. We're really excited to, to have you on the podcast and really looking forward to having this conversation. But I really want to start by just asking if you could tell us a bit about yourself. How, how did you come to create your own nonprofit? Um, what, you know, what's the story behind you and, and the organization that you're, you're running? Yeah, I think, well, the story behind it really goes back to my parents. So my dad's a teacher, my mom's a social worker. So I had that sort of like education and care about people thing for a long time and just responding to needs. So in my community growing up um, in Amherst, Massachusetts, there was a, a relatively large influx of Cambodian refugees and then they had to pay taxes and like, how do you deal with being a refugee and paying taxes? But my dad happens to be really good at taxes. So he was like, I'll just go over and set up a table where folks are living and say like, Hey, do you need help with your taxes? Great. I really like doing taxes because I'm kind of a weird math nerd um, and did them. And so just kind of responding by using the skills and talents that you have is something that I've always been 
has just been ingrained into me. So when I was teaching in New Orleans, we had a student who was arrested for uh, under the suspicion of taking a bag of chips from a grocery store, which he hadn't done. Uh, but the, he was disrespectful, whatever that means, to the cop. And the cop ended up just arresting him on some bogus charge. And he was locked up. Wasn't His family wasn't able to pay bail. So I posted online kind of on a lark, like, hey, if anybody can help me, I'm trying to raise money for one of my students. And the response was pretty massive. Because, reasonably, people think it's not really a good idea, which research also shows, to put kids in cages. And ever since then, we've just been bailing kids out where we can, supporting their families with safety planning, and then really thinking about like what's the long-term solution and how can we build restorative places, schools where kids can get the academic support they need, but also sort of the broad cultural support, the broad you know, sort of skill development support, and then really healing from having been kidnapped by the state and, and thrown in a cage. So tell us more, what is Underground? Where are you guys located at? And can you give us some ideas of like the specific services and, and things that you guys do? Yeah, so we started in Louisiana, but operate nationwide. And we have two programs in a third launching soon. So our initial program is just to pay bail and fines and fees. More juvenile justice programs throughout the country are shifting to models where students have to do more restorative things, community service or what have you. Uh, but oftentimes they have to pay back fines and fees. And that can be, they can, if, if it's $50 and you don't have it, uh, it might as well be a million. So we're able to help provide families with that money or or bail should the, should the judge not sort of grant uh, a low bail for families. And then in, in the alternate, we're able to provide costs for additional legal fees. So one, one example is we had a student who the judge said, you need to go back to school. He wasn't going. The issue was that he didn't have money for a uniform and the school would let him return. So we paid for a uniform. Our other program is to is to hire really talented school leaders in our fellowship program, teach them our model, and then support them as they launch schools. Our first school is actually launching this fall. COVID happened, and so we're going to have to push the launch back to January, hopefully, if we can all, as a as a national team here, get our act together. Um, but but our schools are really they're micro schools. They're very small. They have a pretty innovative block model that allows, uh, that's research supported and allows for students to um, sort of direct their own learning, but also have it directed and supported because many students often are isolated at school and don't get the the opportunity to stay current with their academics. Um, And then the third program, which I'm super excited about, is going to be launching once uh, I have my JD, um, is what I like to call the jump out girls, just how the police jump out and harass people in communities. Our goal is to be able to jump out and offer in the moment representation to people who are being harassed by the police such that the police eventually get tired of it and find something else to do with their time. That's hopefully a bit more productive. Wow. So really disrupting the system on the ground before it can escalate to something. That's the plan. Yeah. So let me ask you this. I mean, you are offering so many different services. How do you know that these are services that folks need, right? So I've never heard a a judge say when admonishing someone for not following their rules, why didn't you do this? And then then the child being able to say, well, I couldn't get a uniform, right? And so that the judge could connect the dots. How do you identify that these are these, you know, niche areas that make a big difference if there's intervention? 
I think a lot of it is just really listening. So listening to families, forming really good relationships with public defenders offices across the country. Many for in the juvenile space um, and some in the adult space have social workers. So listening to them because they're, that was a social worker actually who identified what the problem was. And then I think part of it is some of my practical experience as a, as a teacher, because you've, I've seen things like, you know, a student comes in and has their hood on and then you say, take your hood off and then they don't. And it becomes an issue and your intuition is like, that's not a usual behavior for this student. And then you ask a question and, and find out like, hey, my mom didn't do my hair this morning and I'm embarrassed. So it's like, okay, well, no problem. I can do your hair. So I think being a teacher kind of gave me that solution minded thing where I wanted all kids to be present in my class and needed to do whatever I needed to do to make that possible for them. So I think it's the same type of approach is just really listening to families uh, via the folks who are directly working them, be they lawyers or social workers. And I think also just lowering the bar to entry. So when a, when a, a lawyer will send me a text message saying, Hey, I have a, a kid who has a bond. He needs X amount of, of money. We don't spend a lot of time like getting more details from the family. Because they're already going through a lot. They don't need to rehash every single piece of the traumatic experience of interacting with the justice system. So I think lowering our bar to entry allows us to get more of the good information that's going to help us sort of see where we can best be supportive. Your work is amazing. Uh, And like listening to you talk about it, I I think I'm hopeful uh, that the work that you're doing is making a real impact in the lives of kids across the country, really. And but it's a lot of work, right? I have mm. to assume that if you're uh, working nationally and you have these this relationships with uh, different teams across the country, that it takes a lot for you to continue to do it. So can I ask what, what motivates you to keep doing this work, to keep working toward uh, making a difference in the lives of, of for these kids? Yeah, I think two things. One, I think just the thought of my own kid or any uh, child close to me being thrown, you know, kidnapped by the state and thrown in a cage is just untenable. Like it's just not okay. And there's models that show that we don't have to do that. Any given morning in America, there's 50,000 kids who wake up in a jail cell and we could just as easily not do that. Right. It's 50,000 kids. That's eminently manageable in terms of thinking about alternatives. And an interesting model actually is Vermont who was pretty essentially uh, decarcerated their juvenile population. So I think at last count, there was three kids under an locked facility in Vermont in total, like right now today, which three is too many, but like three is, is incredibly impressive in terms of thinking about what it could be if they wanted to be more punishment minded, but they've developed really good systems, um, really good alternatives, really strong supports uh, for kids, including sometimes just getting kids into a better situation. So there was a particular, you know, without giving away too much information, a particular student who got in some trouble in Vermont. And the solution that everybody agreed to was that like the relationships that he was engaged with just weren't positive. He wasn't able to be safe in Vermont. So they found him a, a better place to be in a different state. And he's, he's been able to be successful then. So really creative solutions and just a commitment to, to, and on the legislative part, I think to be open to solutions. So they actually pushed their age for juvenile adjudication up to 21, or that should be, I think that's going into place this year so that more people get this sort of opportunity to fix it without having to just be, be thrown in jail. So I think it's those two prongs, right? Of like, this is horrible, but it's also that there's hope and we don't, 
have to do it. We could wake up and decide to do something different. Now, I mean, obviously, I think by now everybody's pretty well aware of the ongoing protests against police brutality and the arrests of protesters uh, who have been out there on the streets doing this work. Issues pertaining to the cash bail system that we've created have really been brought to the forefront, I think, uh, in, the, in the last few weeks. However, I, I feel like this really ignores the experiences of juveniles that are arrested and then incarcerated. Can you share with us more about the need for unique services for this specific group of, of people, of kids? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is actually is relatively similar. But I think if we're going to start with which I'd always like to have a conversation about prison abolition, it really makes sense to start with talking about kids because people understand that, you know, for example, the juvenile brain, you're not, your brain isn't even fully formed until you're 25. Sorry, neurologists. I don't know the details, but I do know that that's generally true. So, right. If you're, if your brain and your decision-making capacity isn't even fully grown in, how can we throw you in jail for life? Or how can we throw you in jail really at all? because you don't have the skill set yet. So what we need to do is see, I think for everybody, but it's particularly approachable for kids to see like, if you're making negative decisions, there's a skill deficit there, but we have so many talented experts. And again, with the, with the population size being around 50,000, like that's an eminently handable number. Like, right. We can figure out and get those 50,000 kids services monitoring even if we need to right like not my favorite but like fine like get them somebody to walk around with it if, if you're worried about safety we can get fifty thousand people to do that um we can have a one-to-one ratio if we need to so i think that because again like when you're in the juvenile space you get to sort of understand things as a skill problem rather than a will problem it allows us to to be open to that solution because Kids need really what we all need. They just need way more time to, to, to figure it out. So they need to figure out who they are, how to balance all of their things, how to deal with their emotions, how to deal with the trauma that they've experienced. And, you know, not to say that that youth aren't unfairly, obviously, uh, particularly with Black youth, and, and that's something that we're finally having a national conversation about are unfairly criminalized. But, like, yeah, there are also kids who make mistakes, the, the problem is when you're white and live in the suburbs, your mistake is like the police officer drives you home. When you're black and make mistakes, it's like, well, you know, like I had some weed and it's legal actually in most states, but like now I'm in jail for 20 years. It just doesn't track and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, and again, it's something that we could just wake up and decide to solve. So like, while there are things that, that youth need, I think we as sort of the adults allegedly in charge really have to understand that like, Kids make mistakes, as does everybody, but their brains aren't ready yet to do everything that they're going to be able to do throughout the course of their life. So this is like actually an awesome opportunity to help them develop the skills to deal with whatever is going to come at them. And like they've identified like, hey, I need some help. I have a skill gap. <laughs> and that's a cool opportunity for us to be like, cool, we actually have lots of people with resources, talent, skills who can help you figure out how to get yourself in a better situation. So you've alluded to this, but, um, you know, we've been having conversations about defund the police, prison abolition, um, and significant revolutionary reforms in our criminal legal system. But we also know that the education system, the housing Mm -hmm. system, healthcare system are broken in many ways and and fundamentally broken because uh, they're racist, uh, 
for, you know, just to be clear, I think I've said this like six yeah. times on this podcast, <laughs> eventually someone. <laughs> and from your perspective and the work that you're doing, um, what are some of the most pressing issues that you want our listeners to, to be considering um, and, and how we create change? Yeah, well, I think one is to really just have conversations about poverty. It's amazing to me how many people don't understand what poverty really means. So I'll have folks, even donors sometimes to my organization who's, who are like, well, it's just $50. Well, $50 is A, a lot of money, and B, if you don't have it, it might as well be $20 million, right? Like, you don't have it, you have no way of getting it, and that's the thing you need to get your kid out of jail. Like, that's that's not okay. People don't understand how it, how poverty can really uh, control sort of everything that you do. If you don't have access to food or you have to think about where your next meal is coming from, you know, there's tons of studies that show how that does, just doesn't allow your brain to do the things that other folks brain has the, has the capacity to do. So I think an understanding of that. And, and again, it, it, it kind of boggles my mind because Poverty is something that we could end if we would stop pathologizing it. So rather than be like, oh, you need to do this or this or that or get yourself together or get a job or do this, like poverty is just a lack of money. And I think we saw when the government gave however many trillion dollars to the markets, which I don't even know what that really means, that they have the money. So we could just decide that we aren't going to have people who are poor, who aren't able to have food. Um, And we're just going to make sure that they have a house and food every day. And then if they want extras, right, they figure out how to get those. So I think that it isn't really much to think about poverty as the sort of the central cause because it connects to all the other systems that you're mentioning, Ashley. So schools, right, they're funded by uh, by tax, by property tax, right? So like this school is just not going to have a resource. It would be so easy. And by easy, I mean the math would be easy, not the political will, to just put all the school systems budgets from all across the country in one big pot, do some division, and give everybody the money equally. Never going to happen because there's no political will for it. But, like, the solutions aren't uh, tricky. And there is also, like, a ton of scholarship around this. So if you're like, this lady, Adrian, is doing the most, and I, like, don't listen to her, there's tons of scholars who have, like, done real work on addressing poverty and the systems like education and healthcare that are connected to it. Um, and so I think that's a really good place to start because the solutions are so obvious. What I think we struggle with is building the political will around it because we feel like, well, if you're poor, you've done something wrong. And I think there's this myth and this sort of this story that people buy into and believe, which is like they're closer to being, Jeff Bezos than to being homeless, which is like, mm, no, you're not. Um, and so getting people to understand that like, we're all much more like the homeless person who for whatever reason doesn't have access to housing than we are to like work hard and grit your teeth and you'll be Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Like you won't be, and they don't need to have that much money anyway. So I think that the solutions are there and, and there's so much good work on how to, how to make them happen. And it's just a little bit mind boggling that, we haven't done the work, I think, on getting the political will to make those solutions happen. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I I was just reading. Bezos made four hundred and fifty million dollars over, yeah, over the 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 quarantine and pandemic. And I'm going, um, but all these people lost their jobs and have no money and are going to be evicted. And I can't even fathom that amount of money. Like I seriously, I, I, in my, yeah. I can't even make sense of it. Like, I understand could, the math, but I don't. He could pay <laughs> everyone's rent, right? 
and still have some left over. Um, and still but, be the richest person on the planet. <laughs> still be the richest person on the planet. Yeah, but we do have this sense. You're absolutely right that we have to uphold this. I mean, classist divide, right? And 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 our racism is very tied to our classism, mm-hmm. where it reinforces it in many ways, right? So, uh, as you said earlier, underground provides funds for for bail, but also legal defense for those in the juvenile justice system. I was looking through your website and was very interested in the fellowship program that you mm. run. And I wonder if you could talk to me more about that, because I thought that looks just incredibly interesting. Uh, so how does it work? And why is this an important response to address the failures of the juvenile justice system? Yeah. So initially I was like, well, I'm just going to open a bunch of schools for all the kids who have been armed by the system of mass incarceration. But I am at the end of the day, just one person. And so I was like, I know that actually there's a ton of people, teachers specifically, who are like-minded um, and I think could run really successful schools. The, the model is to specifically be micro schools so they can be really responsive to the needs of the kids that are that attend them. So uh, it just popped up in my mind, all of these sort of High, high performing charter schools that have these actually very carceral disciplinary systems, but that's another conversation, um, have fellowship programs where they give you a year to learn their model and then you become, uh, you know, a school leader should you pass whatever test they have. So it occurred to me like, hey, you're using that to get people into a system that I actually think harms kids. So why don't I come up with a, a fellowship that's an alternative. So I spent a ton of time fundraising to try and get some money for it, uh, was able to piece it together and really saw the growth of um, our first school leader cohort from, you know, the day we first met all the way to, you know, preparing to launch their school. So a fellowship, just to sort of give folks a, an overview, is a, a year training program where folks work with me and other school leaders to see what a restorative and transformative school really looks like, to build their own practices into it, and to think about what it means to run a school with kids who are dealing with the trauma of having been thrown in a cage. And so that's a lot to do because that person has to be, you know, sort of academic coach, teacher supporter, budget manager. Uh, social worker, uh, parent, friend, and sometimes somebody who has to receive something from parents and they don't have another space to give it. So that can be difficult. So just learning how to be sort of that person and how to build connections in the community. I think ideally the fellowship would get to a place where we could have sort of folks who are organized in the community say, hey, we want to bring one of these schools here this is a great person who we think would be a good leader and we're all going to stay engaged with that person and, and bring them sort of that way. For now, it is looking like, you know, I recruit folks from from communities and, and share with them this model as it's more widespread. I'm hoping that the community will sort of self-nominate when they're looking for um, schools. And we have had a, a few folks reach out in our, in our building that way. But yeah, so the fellowship is a great program. Um, if you're interested in school leadership and you sound like the type of person who would stand in the doorway and make sure that the police didn't get into your school to look for a kid, then you're probably somebody who should think about applying. That's fantastic. I And so you already started with that. But my next question really is, uh, how can our listeners get involved with underground and or uh, juvenile justice reform efforts? Yeah, I think there's a there's a ton of ways to get involved and 
you know, this is something that I say a lot and I say it because I mean it. Budgets are moral documents. So if you aren't engaged with giving to Black-led organizations that serve Black people, and by Black people, I mean all Black people, so trans, gender nonconforming, super important to make sure because those those kids are in particularly criminalized, then you should uh, write a check. So uh, we are happy to take donations and donations, just to be totally frank, right? Like the actual money helps more than in-kind donations, but we also are happy to be able to give our kiddos things like books, um, which they otherwise just don't have while they're in a facility. Um, we are also happy to have them be able to connect with folks who are interested in mentoring. Um, we have kids who have like crazy engineering skills and that's like, you know, totally over my head. So any, any uh, folks who have particular skills that they may want to mentor somebody in, that's a great uh, opportunity as well. And I think lastly, if you happen to be a lawyer and are super interested in reading and editing briefs, well, that's always fun to do. And we always appreciate help there. Uh, so those are those are some of the ways. But I think an essential part is, right, like we're getting ready to launch this legal program. And one thing that I'd like to be able to do is have actually a documentarian, so a journalist, be able to really document police practices on the ground uh, in the moment with a camera to be able to reflect what's really happening in a way that people can see. And so, uh, and, and be able to craft a, a narrative around that. And so being able to pay for that, you know, would be nice. And so uh, again, financial donations are, are much appreciated, but I think the broader question about getting involved in juvenile justice is, for example, when I was a, a, a school leader at a middle school, I had a student who had various small issues where, you know, he was, arrested for this for a couple of days, this, that, the other thing. It all boiled down to the fact that he didn't want to be in class because he was in eighth grade but could only read at a third grade level because, again, a skill gap. So long story short, eventually, you know, this kid's uh, parents reached out to me and said, like, hey, this kid is not going to be in school because he's unfortunately in juvie. And we're not sure what when the judge is going to let him out. So I just figured I would try. And I wrote a letter to the judge and said, hey, listen, I'll sponsor his community service. He can come and work with me. If you, if you let him out and the judge said, okay. So I think uh, becoming engaged and figuring out what's going on in your local system is, is a good idea. So I've learned so much from you. Um, and I think that our listeners are probably really glad to hear your story. Is there anything else that you want to add? Any words of wisdom for our listeners? I think maybe just to think about when you, when you're seeing a kid who's having a hard time, think about this, the skill that, that maybe they need to develop. Think about yourself at that age and what you were doing and extend that, that graciousness and don't call the police. Yeah, that's a big one. And I, I, you know, I think that one of the things that, that you talked about early on is that, right, the black and brown kids are disproportionately affected by these systems. And I, I suspect that a lot of it, listen, we're near Cleveland where Tamir Rice was shot at 12 for having a, a toy gun, right? Standing right next to his sister, his little sister. And I think that a lot of what we fail to understand as, you know, as white people is that our understanding of kids and what kids go through and what our kids go through aren't what 
kids from black and brown communities go through because police and justice systems treat them differently. Education systems treat them differently, right? Black girls are far more likely in a classroom to get sent to, you know, detention for doing the same stuff that other, that other white girls in the, in the room are doing. So I think that it's hard for us to think on that. And I really appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing that I'll say to the white parents in the room that are, that are listening is to really, instead of saying something like, you know, if you're trying to talk to your kids about what's going on, instead of saying something like, hey, you know, black people are unfairly arrested by the police or black people this or black people that, like, talk about white people and and say that, you know, as white people, we can make mistakes in front of the police and they won't arrest us. As white people, we can do, right? Like, talk about pathologize the whiteness rather than the blackness because oftentimes what kids hear when you say, well, black people are more likely to get arrested. They hear, well, black people are more, there must be some problem with black people when actually the problem is with whiteness. Right. So I grant you these unearned privileges. So to say, you know, because we're white, we were able to get out of that situation with the police. They're like, you know, you saw me get it kind of upset at at the store and, and nobody called the police on me. And that's because we're white, right? So explaining that as just a, as a different frame, and I think allows for kids to sort of see more effectively what's going on around them. Obviously, you know, you adapt for their for their age and level of development, but I think that that framework can be really helpful. And just to plug, one of my teachers, Elijah Anderson, wrote this paper called "White Space, Black Space." If you search it, uh, Elijah Anderson, Yale, and then search, um, you'll find it. And it's a really great resource in terms of thinking about what spaces are facilitated to be white and what spaces are facilitated to be black. And it's been a really helpful framework, I think, to talk to kids at all stages of development about what it means, you know, sort of how our society is structured and and what kind of person you want to be in pushing back against that. I love that article, by the way. (laughs) So great. He's the best. (laughs) Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate you being on. You're awesome. And we love your work. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about filling the gap.